I don't know about you, but I was rather impressed with that introduction. <laughs> I didn't know I was that good. Uh, he didn't mention that he messed me up in Greek. <laughs> he taught me how to mispronounce all the words. <laughs> and I realize that I'm, I'm probably was invited to be here this morning to deal with the subject of stewardship. And that is my intention. You will probably not think so. So don't bail out until we get to the end, and hopefully we'll make that come to pass. I'd like to read a couple of the verses that have already been read out of Matthew 10, beginning in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats, or sandals, or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. At the age of 21, I sensed a call from God. And because of the nature of this place, many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. A call from God is difficult to explain. I believe that every follower of Christ is called to evangelize and encourage and explain the faith. But some of us are recipients of a different kind of call, an assignment to give the majority of our lives to the work of the gospel. In the 39 years of my life since that call, I have been a pastor for only about 14 of those years. However, if at any point in my life you were to ask me what I do, the answer has always been, I'm a preacher. Preaching has not always paid the bills. I made a living by being a salesman, consultant, a denominational employee, a writer, a book publisher. There have been times when I preached at three to five churches a week, and other times when I went three to five months in between preaching opportunities. But it doesn't matter how often I've preached. At any point in my life, if you ask me what I do, the answer has always been, I'm a preacher. As I neared graduation from college, the head of the religion department at Wayland told me that the opportunity to preach would be very difficult for me because of the wheelchair. At seminary, they excused me from preaching classes and from the preaching requirements and tried to steer me toward counseling, assuming that I was not physically able to be a preacher. When it was time for, after 13 years of successfully pastoring a church and it it was time for me to move on, in spite of glowing recommendations from denominational leaders, churches would not listen to me or were not interested. However, it does not matter who thinks I can preach. At any point in my life, if you ask me what I do, the answer has always been, I'm a preacher. In spite of being frequently encouraged to pursue another career, it is the call of God that has shaped my life 
and determine my experiences. I have given my life to pursuing this call of God. I am enamored and I am overwhelmed with the call of God. I can honestly declare to you today that I have exhausted my resources striving to be faithful to this call of God. Because of that, I am not only deeply in love with Jesus, but I am also deeply in love with the church, the body of Christ, his physical presence in our world. Because you see, I've not only spent 39 years studying Christ, I've also spent 39 years studying the church. I've preached in nearly 500 pulpits. I've provided extensive consultation to more than 200 pastors. I've read books and articles about the church vociferously. Needless to say, I have a lot of opinions about the church and about church leaders. Having said all that as a means of introduction today, I plan to discuss what I consider to be one of the more discouraging characteristics of church life. To be honest with you, I'm not very optimistic about the church. And that's difficult for me because I am the eternal optimist. I usually not only see the glasses half full, I normally see it as flowing over. One of my primary concerns is that we have taken the call of God and turned it into a career. In the 10th chapter of Matthew, we've read about Jesus' call to the disciples. He called them and he sent them out. He sent them out well with a task. Essentially, he gave them three tasks. They were to preach, and they were to teach, and they were to trust. It is the work that he's given the church. It is the call that we've been called to. He's been calling men and women to that same task ever since. However, there's a prevalent trend in the church today where we've turning that call in, of God into a career. The dictionary term of the word career is it's an occupation undertaken for a significant period of time with opportunities for, for progress. Basically, a career is this. A career is the answer to the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? Want to be a doctor? Want to be a lawyer? Want to be a baseball player? Texas Rangers, by the way. <laughs> Want to be a preacher? It's a chosen profession that you expect to earn a living by pursuing. Here's what happens when we turn the call of God into a career. First of all, we change the message. When Jesus called the 12, he sent them out with a very specific message. They were to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, theologians have written numerous books on the meaning of the kingdom of heaven, and I suspect you'll read some of those while you're here in seminary. After you get out, you probably won't, but you might while you're here. Since I must operate in the real world, not in academia, let me offer my real-world understanding of the task. Obviously, kingdom speaks of the place where the king rules. Since it is the kingdom of heaven, then it must be a reference to the place where God in heaven rules. The message that we've been called to proclaim is that the king of heaven is here. Now put yourself in the place of a first century Palestinian Jew. You're living in a land that is controlled by Caesar. Caesar is the king. Now if you're out tending your field or 
Maybe you're shopping in the market one day, and all of a sudden you hear somebody say, the king is here. Caesar is here. It's going to make a difference in your life, isn't it? You're probably going to shut down what you're doing and change your activities. You might even change your life. You will never be the same knowing that the king is right here. Something significant is about to happen. The message of the church is that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, has broken into history, sent his son to open up a relationship with us in order to radically alter our lives. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is a message of reformation and transformation. Like a first century Jew hearing that Caesar is here, it is a message that is shocking and will impact our lives. However, the announcement that the kingdom of heaven is here is no longer the primary message of the church. Instead, it's been replaced by a different message. The message that we most often hear at the church today now is, let me tell you how to be successful. I did a Google search on the phrase, how to be a successful Christian. Received nearly 41 million results. I didn't look at all of them. I also did a search on the phrase, kingdom of heaven. And I did get 17 million results. But the first two pages were about an R-rated movie on the, on the Crusades. You see, the message of the church has been changed for the purposes of making the church less offensive and more acceptable to our 21st century world. The rationale is that in order to get large numbers of people into our church buildings, we must tell them what they want to hear. We call it seeker-sensitive. In reality, it's seeker-driven. Here's the way it works. People want to know how to have a good family life. So let's offer a series of sermons explaining what to do to make it happen. People are struggling with their finances. So let's offer a workshop on managing your money. People are fighting depression, so let's tell them how to overcome despair. Nothing wrong with any of those, and God knows I've done my fair share. But that's far less than the message we were given. We've been called to provide a much more important message to our world. Much more important than how to get along in this world. Our message is an announcement to rearrange our lives according to a different world there is a new king. Jesus has asked us to invite people to a new world, not to help them to be more comfortable in this world. The problem with the church today is that we've changed the message to make it sound like, sound like Christianity is nothing more than living the good life. The second thing we've done is we've changed the method. The method Jesus gave is, is quite startling. He says that you're to heal the sick, Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. I'll be honest with you. That sounds more like a Benny Hinn crusade than anything I'm comfortable with. Now, apparently, the disciples were not as sophisticated as me. They went out preaching the kingdom and doing the works. 
even before the Pentecostal gift of the Holy Spirit. They proclaimed the message with the methods they were given. Later, we're told they came back and reported what they had done. Now, I'm going to say this very bluntly. We don't see much sick healing, dead raising, unclean cleansing, and demonic outcasting today. What's happened? I think we've changed the method. Primarily as a result of changing the message. Here's what I mean. Once the message becomes more about being comfortable or being successful, rather than living in a different kingdom, it's easy to change the methods. If the message is nothing more than feel good and enjoy the best this world has to offer, then why do I need to worry about healing and raising and cleansing? The methods, message or the method becomes more about giving people comfort and entertainment and education. You see, since the message is about living the good life, it's necessary to provide comfort in a very uncomfortable world. We've turned our churches into sanctuaries where folks can go and have all their needs met without rubbing elbows with difficult people and uncomfortable circumstances. The really dynamic churches even provide sports leagues for all the entertainment venues for their children, relationship needs for the whole family, everything that has to do with God's stuff in our lives. We can get it there. All within the confines of a colorful, state-of-the-art facility that makes us simply want to relax and stay for a while. Now, I run the risk of sounding like an old fuddy-duddy here and taking the wrong side of the worship wars. Let me simply say that I think what happens today when the church gathers is more about entertainment than anything else. That's why we need these monolithic congregations, because providing the necessary entertainment is expensive. A third aspect is, to, is that we're now just educating. Listen to a quick list of real sermon topics. And I could tell you who these preachers are that preach these sermons, and you would know who they are. Listen to these. Living in the sweet spot of success. Taking steps toward making change. Don't actually do it, just kind of move that direction, I guess. <laughs> Opening and closing the right doors. Avoiding personal burnout. Twelve keys to abundant living. Save me, I'm drowning in debt. These sermons are very typical of what's happening in church today. And it seems that our, our approach is, is, is to help people enjoy the here and now rather than arranging life for a new kingdom. You know, the hospice movement was started in this country in the 1960s. If you've ever gone through the process with a loved one or family member in, in, in hospice when they've been dying, it's a great thing, isn't it? To have a caring, well-trained professional by your side helping you understand the whole thing. Hospice is a very good thing. However, when it comes to the work of the church, providing hospice care is not a good thing. Yet I think that's what we're doing. We're providing comfort for those people who are dying in the wrong world. The final thing I want to mention, and this is where I get to the stewardship part. Once we change the message, and once we change the method, then our concern has to be with changing our motives. 
That's what happens when we turn a, a, a calling into a career. We've changed our motives. This is really the heart of, of Jesus' message. And it's the heart of what I want to say this morning. Several years ago, I was working with a young pastor. And the subject of pastors in different generations came up. And, and, and he was younger than me. I was not quite old enough to be his father, but not far from it. And he asked, what's the difference in generations? So I said, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Let me ask you a question. When you were talking to this church about being their pastor, did you ask them about vacation and days off? He looked at me rather incredulously and said, well, of course. What's wrong with that? I said, there's probably nothing wrong with that. But I said, that's the difference between your generation and mine. I would have never asked. In fact, when I was his age, if a church was interested in me being their pastor, I would have never asked if they're even going to pay me. Wouldn't have mattered. Now, there's nothing wrong with paying the preacher. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear in our text that the workman is worthy of his payment. God provides for pastors, and he normally provides through a salary given by the church, but we have to be careful with motive. When I was a pastor of a very small congregation out in West Texas, every spring we'd get a survey in the mail from the state office. Survey looked for questions, asked questions about pastor's salary and benefits and all those kinds of things. And the information was compiled by the stewardship department, and then they'd put it, send it back out when it was time to do the church budget. You could look and see if you're being fair in paying your pastor. Every year for 13 years, I dutifully filled mine out and sent it back in. Later, I went to work at the state office working in the stewardship department, and, and they, had see, they had stopped doing that. And I asked them why. And the man who was in charge of it told me the reason that he had quit doing it was that because whenever they sent it out, he got lots of complaints from pastors who were making more than the average. And he said their churches would look at the numbers and realize they're paying their pastor too much. When Jesus issued the call, he clearly said, do not acquire. But the evidence that we've turned the calling into a career is that it's been changed to now, what's in it for me? I'm going to be honest with you. Choosing the ministry is not a bad career choice nowadays. The pay is much better than it used to be. Time off is good. Churches provide decent benefits, including insurance and retirement. It's changed. In times past, joining the army was not seen as a good career move for most people. Times have changed. My youngest son, Andrew, is in boot camp right now. He has a master's degree in forensic psychology. He's going to be a second lieutenant in a few weeks, a few months. He didn't join the army because he wanted to be Rambo. He joined the army because he saw it as a good, good career move. Same is true for the modern church in America. It can be a good career move. In Fort Worth, where I live, there have been two very well-known pastors in the last year who were caught up in scandals over their ownership of a jet airplane. Seems that some people have turned the call of God into a very lucrative career move. However, those guys are not my primary concern. They're not going to listen to me anyway. I am concerned about pastors of small and 
medium-sized churches who've locked themselves into a lifestyle that requires significant financial resources to maintain. They put themselves in a position where they can no longer follow the call, but they must first seek a career. Their biggest concern has, been doing, has become doing whatever is necessary to ensure that the offerings at church stay at a certain level. Decisions are made not necessarily for what is best for the church, but for what is most profitable. I'm also concerned about soon-to-be seminary graduates who will be tempted to allow the lure of gold or silver or copper for your money bags or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. I'm concerned that they'll be distracted from the place where God has called them to serve. If you have been called, it is imperative that you keep yourself in a position that allows you to respond to the call. That means you must keep yourself free from relationships and obligations that will prevent you from doing and going. Now, there's some very practical considerations that we can make from that. First, if you plan to be in full-time ministry, you should plan accordingly. Avoid excessive debt. It's common for seminary students to graduate with large burden of student loans and other debt. The problem is that when you get out there in a church, it's very difficult to find one that can allow to pay you enough to service those debts. Adopt a lifestyle that can be supported by a church without being burdensome to the church. Do not expect the church to make it possible for you to live according to your desires, but be willing to accept what they can give you. It's a tough choice sometimes. Accept the possibility that you will probably have less than others. I think it's safe to say that your call means that it's not going to be compatible with the great American dream. In most cases, you're going to have to live with less. Make sure your spouse makes the same commitments. You can't do this without the support of the most important person in your life. Consider earning your living by doing something other than ministry. That's been the normal practice throughout most of the history of the church, and it's still the practice in most of the world today. Recently, I read a very good book by Eugene Peterson. It's called The Pastor, a memoir. He makes a very valuable observation about what has taken place in the church. He says this, one of the most soul-damaging phrases that has ever crept into the Christian vocabulary is full-time Christian work. Every time it is used, it drives a wedge of misunderstanding between the way we pray and the way we work, between the way we worship and the way we make a living. One of the achievements of the, of the Protestant Reformation was a leveling of the ground between clergy and laity. Pastors and butchers had equal status before the cross. Homemakers were on a par with evangelists. But insidiously, he says, that level ground eroded as religious professionals claimed the high ground and asserted exclusive rights to full-time Christian work and relegated the laity to part-time work on weekends under pastoral direction. A huge irony. The pastors were hogging the show, and the laity were demeaned with the objectives, adjectives mere, only, or just. He or she is just a layperson. Most of what Jesus said and did took place in a secular workplace, in a farmer's field, in a fishing boat, at a wedding feast, in a cemetery, at a public well, asking a woman he didn't know for a drink of water, 
on a country hillside that he turned into a huge picnic in a courtroom, having supper at homes and acquaintances and friends. In our Gospels, Jesus occasionally shows up in the synagogue or temple, but for the most part, he spends his time in the workplace. If you've been called, then you have been called to work. It is the work of proclaiming the kingdom of God by healing and raising and cleansing. That's essentially the work of the church. However, if you put yourself in a position where the ministry must provide you with a specific lifestyle, it is likely that you will adopt the work of the church to meet your needs. Here's the way it works. You need more money. So you must attract larger crowds because they bring more money. In order to attract larger crowds, you've got to provide more services. In order to pay for those services, you need more money. And it becomes a vicious cycle. I met my very good friend, Charlie, a couple of years ago. Charlie's sitting right back there. Charlie also knows Dr. Garland. You can tell some stories, probably. Charlie was interim pastor of the church where I was attending at the time. Sharon and I became involved in a weekday Bible study that Charlie was leading on Thursdays. And to make a long story not quite so long, over the next year we became close and decided that God was calling us to start a church. About a year ago, Bread Fellowship was born. Now together, Charlie and I have more than 60 years of experience in church work. But neither one of us has a minute of experience in starting a new church. Charlie's led some very large churches, and I've consulted hundreds of churches. No doubt we're doing some interesting things, and we'll be the first to admit that not everything we have done has worked been successful. One commitment that we have made, though, is that we're not going to allow the fellowship, this new fellowship, to get in a position where it's about the money. Neither one of us are in a position where we're dependent on the church to put bread on the table. There's no need in a city like Fort Worth with hundreds of underused church buildings. There's no need for us to ever own church property. Our hope is bread fellowship will never be about the money. That doesn't mean we're not going to encourage people to give. That's a part of the gospel. It simply means that we're going to try not to put ourselves in a position where we need something from the church that causes us to alter the task. You see, if we make it a career, then it becomes about us. It's taken me until age 60 to learn this lesson. I now understand that I am not dependent upon the church meeting my financial needs. That's God's work. And until you know this truth, you will not be free to follow the call that God has issued to your life. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Do not acquire a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. Thank you.